Well, first of all, uh, let me just say that I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here in Canny Newcastle and to serve the cause of the Christian Institute. I'm very pleased to be identified with it and to lend my support in a small way to its witness and its work in the present day. Of course, it's quite correct to say that I'm from this part of the world, uh, although I've been almost 20 years now in Lancaster, I still regard that as being part of the south of England, (laughs) and it's sheer joy to just hear vowels pronounced correctly as I wander around the room and hear people in conversation. So it's uh, a joy to be with you all, and it's nice to be back in the part of the world where I grew up and spent most of my formative years. Life is not without its ironies, and I did feel a little bit wry as a Baptist minister being asked to talk about the life of a diocesan bishop. Athanasius was patriarch of Alexandria in Egypt in the first part of the 4th century AD. And Roman Catholic and Orthodox traditions both regard him as a saint and as a doctor of the church. His achievements were many. He was a prolific author and Protestants have traditionally regarded him highly because he was the first Christian leader to produce a canon of the New Testament that included the 27 books that are in use today. He helped to create a distinctively Egyptian Christian identity. For instance, he was the first bishop of Alexandria to write in the Coptic language as well as in Greek. And he also made the developing world of Egyptian monasticism better known to the wider Christian world with one of his books, A Life of St. Anthony. And that book, in its turn, was to have a profound effect on Augustine of Hippo. But among all this, Athanasius is best known for his critical role in what is known as the Arian Controversy. And this was arguably the greatest theological controversy in the history of the Christian Church. It concerned the most fundamental of all questions, who is Jesus Christ? Is he, as he claimed to be, God incarnate? Almighty God come to our world as one of us? Or is he, while superior to human beings in certain respects, nevertheless a created being himself? The Arian controversy focused around the question posed by the old hymn, if any of you remember it, who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? So, I'd like to set the scene by describing something of how the Arian controversy began and developed before I say more about Athanasius himself. This controversy began in approximately 318 AD when an elderly, very cultured and ascetic presbyter named Arius emerged takes its name from him. He was a popular preacher, he came from Libya, and he started teaching that the Father alone is God. The Logos, or the Son, he said, was a created being, made out of nothing by the Father before the rest of the universe was made. And it therefore followed that there was a time when the Son did not exist. Two of his favorite catchphrases 
were these. He was formed out of nothing, and also there was when he was not. Meaning there was a time when the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ as we know him, did not exist. So, according to this man Arius, the Son was the first and greatest of all of the beings that God had created. He was closer to God than every other created being, and God had used him as his agent when he formed the rest of the created order. But only the Father could be said to be fully and completely divine, infinite, eternal, and uncreated. Now, Arius, at this point, thought that he was actually defending the fundamental truth that there is only one God. As he saw it, once you concede that the Lord Jesus Christ is a divine person, you've allowed some room in your mind for the idea that there are two gods. One God is the Father, the other God is the Son. And of course, this, at least at face value, appeared to contradict the many statements in the Bible about God's oneness. Since there was only one God, argued Arius, and since the Father is clearly God, it could only follow from that that the Son could not quite be God. He may be superior to human beings in many ways, but he is still a created person. And Arius buttressed this with reference to scriptures such as the one that we find in Proverbs chapter 8. I'm reading here from verse 22. Um, I'm quoting, by the way, from the New King James Version here. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Now, it has to be said, incidentally, that the view of the person of Christ that this man Arius was teaching is almost identical to the view held at the present time by Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians. Alexandria at that time was a cosmopolitan port city. It was one of the leading intellectual centers of the ancient world and it was soon in a ferment because of this new teaching. Arius had the knack of setting his teachings to catchy tunes and the dockyard workers and sailors began to sing them, effectively sea shanties, really, uh, work songs presenting the views that Arius held. And sometimes these were the same tunes that were also used for coarse drinking songs, but of course it meant that a lot of people knew them. And uh, Gregory of Nyssa summed up the atmosphere in Alexandria by saying that even the street traders and the runaway slaves were given to discussing abstruse points of theology. He said this, uh, imagining that you were accosting someone selling things in the street. Ask about Pence, and he will discuss the generate and the ingenerate. Inquire the price of bread, and he answers, greater is the father and the son is subject. Say that a bath would suit you, and he defines that the sun is out of nothing. Now, Arius was strongly opposed by the diocesan bishop of Alexandria at that time, a man named Alexander, and Alexander insisted that the sun is fully and truly God in as absolute and unconditional sense as the Father is. The problem that Alexander therefore faced was to show that this did not lead, as Arius was alleging, to a belief in two gods. 
Alexander assembled a council of Egyptian bishops in the year 320, which deposed Arius for heresy. It's interesting to speculate whether you could conceive of a heresy trial taking place in the modern uh, Christian world. Someone being held to account for holding false views about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Arius was not willing to give up without a fight, and he went to Palestine, canvassing support from other eastern bishops. He had a ready-made network of contacts. Uh, Partly it's the old school tie syndrome. Uh, In this case, he had been taught by a learned scholar named Lucian of Antioch, Antioch in Syria, that's mentioned in the book of Acts, and he relied on getting in touch with his classmates, essentially, who were all the same age as him and had risen in preferment in the churches throughout the region. And it has to be said, I think, at this point, that of all the bishops who supported Arius, there was a reasonable proportion who did not actually appreciate how far his teachings would take you if you follow them to their logical conclusion. Many actually found this controversy deeply confusing because in some ways, and I say this with caution, Arius seemed to be closer than Alexander did to the traditional understanding among the Eastern churches of the day, and this was derived from a man named Origen, that the Son is certainly inferior to the Father. Well, at this point, the controversy came to the ears of the then Roman Emperor, and it happened to be a man known as Constantine I, often called Constantine the Great, the first Roman Emperor to profess Christianity. He had chosen the old Greek city of Byzantion as the centre of his new capital. Named after him, it became Constantinople and it became the centre of Roman power. And Constantine felt that it was simply his duty as a Christian Emperor to restore unity to the divided churches of the East. So he summoned the first ecumenical council of bishops from all over the eastern half of the Roman Empire, and some even came from the west. This took place in 325, and it was held in Nicaea, in Asia Minor, in what would nowadays be Turkey, and about 300 bishops were present. There's an old tradition, incidentally, which says that there were 318 of them, but this was based on a fanciful reading of Genesis 14 and verse 14, chapter 14 and verse 14 that is, which notes that when Abraham went to the rescue of his nephew Lot, he took 318 men with him. I don't think there's any real uh, connection that one need make between them, but anyway this legend grew up that at the Council of Nicaea there were exactly 318 uh, bishops present. One of the leaders present, a man named Eusebius, and this was Eusebius of Caesarea. We'll meet another Eusebius a little later. And by the by, Eusebius of Caesarea is often regarded as the first church historian. Uh, He's left us a, a picture of what it must have meant to have the greatest ruler in all the ancient world present at what was effectively a conference of Christian leaders. This is what he said. When the whole assembly was seated with proper dignity, silence fell on all before the emperor arrived. First, three members of his family entered in order of rank, and then others came in, heralding his own approach. These were not the soldiers or guards who usually accompanied him, but friends in the faith. Then everyone stood up as the sign was given that the emperor was about to enter. And at last he himself made his way through the midst of the assembly. Looking like some heavenly angel of God. Well, I think you had to say that if it was the emperor. But covered in a garment which glittered as if it were radiant with light. Reflecting the glow of his purple robe 
adorned with the brilliant splendor of gold and precious stones. When he reached the upper end of the seats, he remained standing at first, and when a servant had brought a low chair of wrought gold for him, he did not sit down until the bishops signaled him to do so. And then the whole assembly sat down. Now, you can only imagine what these 300 bishops felt like summoned into the presence of the man who, it was felt, uh, was the ruler of the whole world to restore peace to a divided church. Now, Constantine apparently took an active part in the debates, virtually acting as chairman as the proceedings went, and his court advisor on church matters, a Western bishop, a man from what's now Spain, a man named Horsius of Cordova, uh, he was committed to the principle that the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son, with all that that phrase means. And Hosius was able to convince Constantine that the bishops should accept a statement of faith. A statement of faith which taught that the Son was not a created being, but was eternal and divine in the same sense that God the Father is. And the emperor championed this proposal And after much disputing and drafting and redrafting of this doctrinal statement, a confession of faith emerged, which is known as the Creed of Nicaea. It's not to be confused with the Nicene Creed, which was a later product uh, from later in the same century. Now, uh, some of you will at least have a nodding familiarity with the Creed of Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things visible and invisible. Well, I I won't go through the whole thing. The creed was similar in form to many local creeds that were already in use throughout the Eastern Empire, sometimes as baptismal formulae. And what made this particular creed distinctive is simply that a number of statements were added to it to beef it up and to exclude the possibility of anyone accepting the Arian view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Statements like this. uh, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, and then you have these statements, and they're all anti-Arian. From the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. Now, the most important phrase, perhaps, of all of those, was that phrase, of the same essence. That's a rendering of the Greek word homoousios. It used to be translated into theological English by the word consubstantial though that's not a word you meet very often these days. It came from the Greek word ausia, which meant essence, the deepest, most, uh, the deepest innermost reality of an object. It's, it's nature, it's substance, it's very being. So by stating that the Son is of the same essence as the Father, that means that the creed was affirming that the Son had the same nature, he had the same being as God the Father. So if the Father is eternal and unchangeable and uncreated, it means then that the Son is also eternal, unchangeable and uncreated. Well, the council went on to add some concluding material to the creed, A series of anathemas. The Greek word anathema means given over. And to pronounce an anathema on someone, or to make it into a verb, to anathematize a person, is simply to declare that that person is outside the bounds of the church. That he is not a true Christian and should not be regarded as such. Now, this is an example of the kind of thing. 
As for those who say, there was a time when he, the Logos, was not, and he was not before he was created, and he was created out of nothing, or out of another essence or thing, and the Son of God is created, or changeable, or can alter. The Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes those who say such things. Well, as it turned out, all but two of Arius' supporters gave in and gave their signatures to the Creed of Nicaea. Arius himself refused to do so and was sent into exile. Now, (coughs) the Council of Nicaea was intended to restore unity and peace to a divided church, but in point of fact this did not happen. The Arian dispute rumbled on. The problem, effectively, was that there were actually three parties involved, not simply two. First of all, you had those who were outright Arians. They agreed with Arius that the Son was a created being. But this group was actually relatively small in size. There were never all that many of them. Secondly, you had what we might term the Nicene party. Those who agreed with the statements in the Creed of Nicaea. Those who believed that the Son was equal with the Father in his divine nature. And this party was in the overwhelming majority in the western half of the Roman Empire. But distance meant that they were not very strongly represented at any church councils that were called in the east. Quite simply, at that time, it was difficult for bishops from Gaul, from Spain, from Britain, to get all the way there. And that brings me then to another group. They ought to be described, really, I think, as originists. And these were the great majority in the east. They believed that the Son was not a created being. He was uncreated. He was divine, eternally begotten from the Father's essence. But they also held that he is inferior in some measure to the Father in his divine nature. Not simply in his status as the mediator of the covenant of grace for our salvation, but in his divine nature. So, if we might put it in this way, his divinity, which was never questioned among them, was a degree less divine than the divinity of the Father. Now, I think we have to say that the only outright heretics in this dispute were the Arians. But the main dispute was really between the two other groups. And this strange state of affairs that came about where essentially one small group of heretics set two otherwise orthodox group of Christians at each other's throats arose in this way. The Nicene party, those who supported the creed, were very clear in their minds on the doctrine that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully and truly God. But they expressed their belief in Christ's deity by using language that threw the originist party into some confusion. That word homoousios that I mentioned just now, that Greek term that means of the same essence as the Father. Now, by this, of course, they meant that the Father and Son shared the same divine nature, the same divine being, the same divine attributes and qualities. But their use of words caused a problem within their own context and at that time. It meant that they were open to the charge that they held the same opinions as a group of outright heretics known as the Sabellians. 
Now, no doubt at this point you're thinking, who were the Sabellians? Well, just give me a moment or two. This group took their name from an obscure Roman theologian called Sabellius, and they essentially pressed their belief that God is one to such a marked degree that they essentially argued that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are simply different names that God the Father uses for himself when he's doing different things. So, if we think about it in this way, Sibelius taught something along these lines. That when God in eternity was creating the world and even planning his great purpose of salvation for mankind, by all means call him the Father at that point. It's a name that suits that mode of his operation. When God comes to our world as a human person, well, call him the Son, because it suits that mode of operation. And when God is at work in human hearts, convicting people of sin and bringing them to the new birth, call him the Spirit, if you will, because that describes his mode of operating at that stage. The Sibelians essentially argued, you see, that These names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are simply different modes by which the one God expresses himself. And for that reason, Sabellianism is sometimes also called modalism. It's even sometimes given a third name. It can be called Patripassianism. That name means this. They believe that the Father suffered on the cross. Well, they may as well have believed that because they, in a sense, took the three persons of the Godhead and fused them so completely in their minds that they essentially argued that the Godhead had but one person who goes by different names. Now, by the way, in case you think that this is all a bit academic, Sabellianism is still with us in the form of one branch of Pentecostalism, which is known as Jesus-only or oneness Pentecostalism and certain uh, churches within the Pentecostal orbit would certainly subscribe to a modalist or Sabellian view of the Godhead. Now by the early fourth century uh, Sabellianism had simply become a convenient insult, a term that you could fling at people if you were worried about them and problems arose at the time of the Arian controversy, because the Sabellians had also been in the habit of using the Greek word ausia and related terms to it. And therefore, as soon as the originist party heard members of the Nicene party talking about homo ausios, they thought, they're Sabellians. They're nothing better than modalists. They're these oneness people. Very easy, of course, for Christians relating to other groups of Christians to pick up on things and to overreact, to react too quickly. Essentially, the originists took fright and concluded falsely that the Nicene group were Sabellian heretics. Most of them were certainly not that. But the originists thought that they were and sometimes ended up siding with the Arians against them. Now, another powerful objection, incidentally, that they had was the Nicene party's use of the word homo ausios. You'll find this sometimes with some Christians even today. That word's not biblical, they would say. You can't find it in the sacred text. You've imported a word and imposed it on the text of Scripture. Now, on the other side of this ongoing controversy, the Nicene group, they feared that the originist party were little better than Arians because they tended to speak, and again it was a problem of language and how language was being understood by people on the other side of an issue. The fact that the originists spoke so often about the son being inferior to the father That set alarm bells ringing in the minds of the Nicene party. And they began to think, well, 
that group a little better than outright Aryans. The Originist Party formed the majority in the East. They'd accepted the word homo ausios at the Council of Nicaea, not because they really agreed with it, but as they argued once they got safely away from the council, the fact that the emperor was there made us feel intimidated. We didn't feel safe. But as soon as they had time for cool reflection, they thought the use of this word homo ausios was tantamount to the old heresy of Sabellianism. Well, at this point, let me introduce Athanasius, the man you came to hear about. (laughs) In the year 328, that's three years after the council, Alexandria acquired a new bishop. This man, Athanasius. And he became the outstanding champion of Nicene theology in the East and because of that has been one of the greatest and most influential thinkers in the entire history of the Christian church. According to his friend, a frank admirer of his, Gregory of Nazianzus, who later himself uh, took up the cudgels and the same ongoing controversy with Arianism, well, Gregory said that Athanasius was a small man, uh, very thin, very slight in build, with... uh, Uh, a face that was very handsome, um, striking bone structure, neat features, that he was a man with piercing eyes, and that for all his small size, he had a remarkable aura about him. You always knew when Athanasius was in a room. And even his enemies were sometimes affected by his presence. Now, Little is known about his early life. That's, I'm afraid, a common uh, feature of the biographies of eminent Christians. Uh, Nobody could predict that when this little boy grew up, uh, he would turn out to be a great teacher of the church, so nobody was taking notes at the time. But um, there is a legend, and I don't know how much weight we can place on this, that he first came to the notice of Bishop Alexander when, as a boy, he was spotted playing on the beach. Remember, Alexandria's in the Mediterranean Sea, and he was there with a group of his playmates, and they were holding a baptismal service. And Athanasius was acting as bishop, baptizing his playmates. Now, evidently, the liturgical detail of their game was so correct as far as the bishop was concerned, that he pronounced these baptisms valid and then recommended that all the boys in question should train for the ministry. And in due course, Athanasius became a deacon and personal secretary to Bishop Alexander. And in fact, at the Council of Nicaea, he prepared a position paper outlining many of the arguments that Alexander used against the Arians. So he would already had been uh, in the background, behind the scenes, as it were, uh, as a very influential figure at that council. Now, it was the recommendation of Alexander, as he lay dying, that Athanasius should be elected as his successor. Now, it has to be said that for many years to come, the Uh, ordination was challenged by his opponents. There were allegations that his ordination was not technically valid. Some argued that he was too young. There was a canonical limit on the age at which a person could be elevated to the episcopate. Uh, And others had accused Alexander of treating his own protege, his blue-eyed boy, if you will, with undue favour. But As Athanasius matured, his theology was centered on the doctrine of salvation. In common with Christians in the East at that time, he thought particularly that salvation should be understood in terms of deification. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, through his work in human beings, eventually makes us divine. Now that did not mean, I hasten to add, that the Lord Christ actually changed the human nature of men and women into God's nature. It's rather that human nature was lifted up by the grace of God through Christ to share in the glory of God and the immortality of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 was a favorite text where the Apostle Peter describes Christians as partakers of the divine nature. Now, in that case, Athanasius argued, and here we're getting to the nub of it, how could the Lord Christ make human nature divine if he himself was not a divine person? If he himself is less than God, how could he save anybody? Only God can save. A Christ who is less than God is a bridge from earth to heaven that's broken at the far end. It's the salvation of sinners that's at stake. And if so far this has all seemed a rather strange list of names uh, and different positions in areas that you might think sound fairly abstruse, then that's the way to see it. If the Lord Jesus Christ is a created being, if he's part of God's creation, then he is not the solution to the human problem, to the human condition, to the fact that we are fallen beings who need salvation. In fact, if the Lord Jesus Christ is a created being, He's part of the problem. And Athanasius also, incidentally, developed another argument as well. Christians worship Christ. Now, if it's true that the Lord Jesus Christ is a created being, then that's tantamount to idolatry. To worship a created thing? rather than the Creator Himself. But if, on the other hand, the Lord Christ is God the Creator Himself, come down to our world as one of us, then it's right and proper and fitting that He should be given all the honors of divine worship. In effect, Athanasius said, the Arians, in worshipping a created being, were committing idolatry. Let's hear how Athanasius himself put it. No one else but the Saviour, who in the beginning made everything out of nothing, could bring what had been corrupted into a state free from corruption. No one else but the image of the Father could recreate human beings in God's image. No one else but our Lord Jesus Christ, who is life itself, could give immortality to mortal humans. No one else but the Logos, who imparts order to everything and is the one true and only begotten Son of the Father, could teach us about the Father and destroy idolatry. He became human that we might become divine. He revealed himself in a body that we might see the invisible Father. He endured men's insults that we might inherit immortality. Now, Athanasius set out his understanding of the deity of Christ. And later, by the way, uh, he developed um, at least the beginning of a similar doctrine about the person of God the Holy Spirit in writings such as these. The Incarnation of the Logos, Orations Against the Arians, and his letters to Serapion. And for the next 45 years, a total of the period when he was Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius proved to be an unswerving, 
uncompromising enemy of Arianism in all its forms. If you want um, to read back into the 4th century, a 17th century phrase from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you could say he was Mr. Valiant for Truth. Now, together with unfaltering devotion to the deity of Christ, Athanasius combined remarkable and forthright courage, a quick mind, and even something of a a mordant sense of humor. And as time passed, a growing tolerance for those who were united with him against the Arians. We'll say more about that later. Now, just to give you an example of his sense of humor, on one occasion toward the end of his life in 362, when uh, the Roman Empire had fallen into the hands once again of a pagan emperor, a man with the unfortunate name Julian the Apostate. Well, Athanasius had fled from the city to escape soldiers who'd been sent to arrest him. And uh, when he got to a point where he was sufficiently ahead of the soldiers in in a boat on the river uh, somewhere on the Nile Delta, Uh, and couldn't be seen, he he turned his boat around and rowed back towards them. And when the soldiers got within hailing distance, they asked him, is is Athanasius close by? And he waved cheerily and said, yes, he's not far. He's not far. And uh, allowed the soldiers to row past him, and he went back to the original bank. Now, in the meantime, however, the Arians were gathering their strength. Their leader was another Eusebius, this time a man named Eusebius of Nicomedia. He was a clever politician and he had the ear of the emperor. He'd become bishop of Constantinople, you see, in 339. And one of the first things that he tried to do was to get Arius released from his exile and brought back to Constantinople. Now, although Arius had sparked off the whole controversy, he was by now a very old man, and his own personal star was on the wane. But events in Constantinople proved to be quite remarkable. I'm quoting uh, here, and on this occasion from an authority named Socrates Scholasticus, who has this to say about Arius coming back to Constantinople. At that time, the year 336, Alexander presided over the church in Constantinople. It's another Alexander. He was a devout and godly bishop, qualities he clearly proved by his conflict with Arius. When Arius arrived in the city, the people divided into two factions and the city was thrown into confusion. Some insisted that the creed of Nicaea must be obeyed. Others argued that Arius' views were in harmony with reason. Interesting way to put it, isn't it? They're perfectly logical. This forced Alexander into grave difficulties, especially since Eusebius of Nicomedia had violently threatened to have Alexander instantly deposed unless he admitted Arius and his disciples to Holy Communion. Would you allow Arius to take communion in any church where you've got some part in the authority structure? Well, at his wit's end, Alexander said farewell to the resources of human wisdom and took refuge in God, devoting himself to continual fasting and ceaseless praying without telling anyone He shut himself up in the church called Peace and prostrated himself beneath the communion table where he poured forth his fervent prayers with weeping. He did this without ceasing for many nights and days and he received from God what he so earnestly sought for this was his prayer. If Arius' views are right, may I not be allowed to see the day appointed by the emperor for discussing them. But if I myself hold the true faith, may Arius suffer the penalty his ungodliness deserves as the author of these evils. Now that's worth a little pause for thought. Uh, When you're next in conversation with the Jehovah's Witness, uh, 
would you be praying along those lines? You know, would the Lord vindicate uh, the true gospel by visiting disaster upon these heretics who are standing on my doorstep with copies of Awakened Watchtower? Well, let's see what followed. It was Saturday and Arius was expecting to take communion with the church on the following day. But divine vengeance overtook his daring crimes as he left the imperial palace Attended by a mob of Eusebius followers like guards, he paraded proudly through the city, the center of attention. But as he approached the place called Constantine's Market, at one and the same time, the terrors of conviction attacked his conscience and a violent seizure attacked his bowels. He asked if there was somewhere nearby where he could relieve himself and someone directed him to the back of the market. There he fainted, and his bowels came spilling out. I won't say where. Together with streams of blood, parts of his spleen and liver poured out in the flow. He died almost instantly. People in Constantinople still point out the place where this calamity happened. Behind the meat market in the Colonnade. This constant pointing out of the place has preserved a perpetual memorial of this extraordinary death and the disaster filled with dread and alarm the party of Eusebius of Nicomedia and the news spread quickly throughout the city and indeed the whole world the emperor confessed that God had vindicated the creed of Nicaea and rejoiced at what had happened well Eusebius actually was made of stern stuff and nothing daunted. He started a campaign to try and pick off the leading bishops in the east who'd supported the creed of Nicaea one by one. And he went for the lesser figures first and intended to go for Athanasius, if you will, last of all. He waited, in other words, until he felt secure before he tried to take on Athanasius. Knowing that he could not make a charge of false doctrine stick against the patriarch of Alexandria, he tried to undermine his moral character. Sometimes alleging that his ordination was invalid, we've seen reference to that. Sometimes with accusations of black magic, that was a useful way of generally spreading dirt about someone's character. Or even, and this is quite hilarious, with an allegation of murder. There was a synod in Tyre on the Palestinian coast where Athanasius was accused of having murdered a man named Arsenius. And not only so, but of having mutilated his corpse by cutting off one of his hands. Well, Athanasius was able to refute this charge simply by producing this man Arsenius and asking him to hold his hands up. But Eusebius achieved his greatest success in 335 when he persuaded Constantine to banish Athanasius. And he did so with a false allegation. He alleged that Athanasius had been contemplating a dock strike in Alexandria. Now, Egypt at that time, and and this seems incredible when you think, of Egypt nowadays, the first thing that comes to mind is that it's a a desert country, isn't it? But then it was the main grain-growing region for the entire Roman Empire. And in particular, grain ships from Alexandria kept the population of the capital in Constantinople fed. So as soon as they um, whispered in the ear of the Emperor Constantine and said, you know what Athanasius has been up to? He's threatening that if he doesn't get his way, he'll stop the grain shipments. Well, even though there wasn't a word of truth in it, it was enough to make the emperor lose his temper and have Athanasius banished. He was sent to a city in uh, Roman Gaul. It's nowadays in Germany, actually. The city is Trier. And altogether, he was to be banished five times. This was the first such exile. In fact, there are some... uh, Historians who suggest that he might have been banished on seven occasions. And it's this period in his life where his 
um, effectively uh, yo-yo existence, sometimes in Alexandria, sometimes banished from it, uh, gave rise to the famous nickname uh, in Latin, Athanasius contra mundum, meaning Athanasius against the world. Altogether, of his 45 years as Bishop of Alexandria, something like 17 of those years were spent in exile. The Emperor Constantine died in 337, and the empire at that point was divided into two. His two sons, Constance, became ruler of the western half of the empire, and Constance favoured the Nicene party in this controversy. But the other son, who was called Constantius, Constance in the west, Constantius in the east, both sons of Constantine, um, you can see that obviously their names are an attempt to replicate their father, well, unfortunately Constantius favoured the Arians. Athanasius had returned from exile, but Constantine Sorry, but Constantius banished him again in 339. And at that point, Athanasius made his way to Rome. Arianism never really had any support in in the West. And the Western bishops were solidly Nicene in their theology, including the then bishop of Rome, Julius I. Now, I'm going to say something that might seem surprising, but at this point... A pope, a bishop of Rome, was a champion of true doctrine in this area. And there are other instances in the early centuries of the Christian era. Well, he reviewed the case of Athanasius and another deposed bishop from the same region, a man, well, a man from Asia Minor, Marcellus of Ankara. And this was at a local council in 340, and he declared that as far as he was concerned, the two men had been wrongfully deposed. Well, the eastern bishops construed this as uh, interference and wouldn't accept the judgment. That's interesting in another way, isn't it, when you consider in, in more recent times the way that bishops of Rome have claimed universal obedience over the whole church. And yet there are occasions when... Uh, Bishops in the early centuries had simply replied to their directives, more or less saying, you don't have the right to tell us what to do or how to think. Uh, You know, you govern your own patch, we'll govern ours. Well, the Eastern bishops had their own council in Antioch. They rejected Rome's right to judge the case. They drew up a new creed and left out the disputed word, Homo ausios. Now instead of that, which in their view was still Sabellian, was still teaching oneness ideas about the nature of God, they preferred to substitute a different Greek word. Homoi ausios. Now the difference is the difference of only one letter. The Greek word iota. I in English. Homo ausios or homoi. What's a single letter, you might ask? Well, all the difference in the world if you're talking about the being of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because homoi ausios meant that the Son was of similar essence to the Father, but not of the same essence. And the problem there is that you're still talking about a Savior who is not quite God. And the Aryan controversy was now in danger of turning into a full-scale split between the eastern and western branches of the church. To nip this in the bud, the two emperors, Constance in the west, Constantius in the east, they summoned an ecumenical church council. Again in 343, a council of the whole church. It met at a place called Sardica. Now, Sardica is now called Sofia and is in Bulgaria. The location was chosen, uh, really on astute political grounds. It was the the area where the the line ran down the map, dividing the eastern half of the empire from the west. And it was felt that it would be a neutral location. 
The council, however, proved to be a disaster. The Western bishops insisted that before any other business could be undertaken, Athanasius and Marcellus must be allowed to take part in the council. The Eastern bishops refused. They construed it as Western interference and they decamped. They cleared off to a nearby city called Philippopolis, which was entirely within the East. They felt safe there, of course, because the Eastern emperor took their side in the dispute. Now, in reality, what had happened is that what had been intended as a single council to unite the church turned out to be two rival councils which simply sent rather hostile and nasty letters to each other, hurling curses at one another. The situation did improve to some extent over the next few years as Eastern and Western Christians began to make some concessions. The West agreed that in the case of the other deposed bishop, Marcellus of Ankara, they were probably backing the wrong horse. His theology was probably Sabellian, as the East feared it was. And the East agreed to take back Athanasius. He returned to Alexandria in 346 amid great rejoicing. And he managed to stay there for the next ten years. There's a period that's known as his Golden Decade. But still, dark clouds had been gathering in 350 when a rebel general in the western half of the empire called Magnentius murdered Constance. Now remember, Constance supported the Nicene party. He supported the view that Athanasius had taken that the Son of God is a divine person. God himself, uncreated before all worlds began. But now he's dead on the field of battle. And in 353, Constantius, the emperor in the east, defeated this rebel Magnentius and made himself the ruler of the whole empire. Well, that meant that he was now in a position to persecute the Nicenes, Athanasius and his supporters, wherever he found them. Constantius was a vain, cruel man. He liked to think he was a great emperor and a great theologian. He was neither, really. In matters of theology, he was really ruled by a kind of inner circle of Arian bishops. And he used all his power as emperor to put fierce pressure on Western church leaders to accept Arianism, silencing all argument just with this retort, Basically, that whatever he believed, since he was the emperor, must be true. It necessarily followed that it must be true. Why else would God have made him emperor? Surely, Almighty God would not make a man with false opinions the ruler of the whole of the known world. And Constantius' most famous victim was a man named Hilary of Poitiers in France, a bishop who was banished all the way from Poitiers to Asia Minor. It was a bad year altogether. It was 356 when Hilary was banished. During that same year, the bishop of Rome, Liberius, another pope who held to this correct view of the true nature of God the Son, he was banished to Berea in northern Greece. And the Emperor Constantine's old counsellor, Hosius of Cordova, now a hundred years old, was imprisoned and tortured. And at that great age, he wasn't really able to hold up under the extremity of torture. He cracked and he eventually signed an Arian statement of faith. Now, it has to be said that once he recovered, he renounced the fact that he'd done so and on his deathbed confessed once more that the Christ in whom he placed all his trust was the divine son of a divine father. Now, finally, Athanasius was banished again in 356. The Arian emperor actually sent troops into Alexandria to arrest him. And uh, what follows a rather hair-raising chase and Athanasius 
escaped just ahead of his pursuers and went into hiding in the Egyptian desert. Uh, in Egypt, there was already a, a tendency to, uh, for Christians to live a solitary existence as hermits, a sort of monastic ideal was growing up and Athanasius found refuge among some of these communities. There's even a legend to the effect that some of the time he took refuge in what was to become his own tomb, the tomb that had been prepared for his own burial. In the meantime, Constantius' soldiers committed brutal outrages against the Orthodox Christians of Alexandria. One Sunday, a group of Orthodox virgin women had gathered for prayer in a graveyard. Now they'd gone there because the Arians had seized all the church buildings and weren't allowing Christians who believed in the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship in their own church buildings. These soldiers seized the women, kindled a great fire, forced the women, or tried to, to convert to Arianism, or else be thrown into this bonfire. Well, when the women refused to abandon their belief in the deity of the Lord Jesus, the soldiers stripped off their clothing and beat them so severely about the face that they became unrecognizable. By 360, Constantius had terrorized most of the church in both east and western segments of the empire to accept a form of Arianism. But this is an example of what we often find in the history of the church of the devil overreaching himself. Because you remember I mentioned three groupings and the outright Arian heretics were actually the smallest grouping. Well, persecution began to unite the Nicene and the Origenist groups. Constantius died in 361, and the new emperor was the man I mentioned a short while ago, Julian the Apostate. He'd been brought up a Christian, but decided, well, at least brought up by Christian parents, with Christian influence around him, shall we say, but had rejected all that and returned to the ancient pagan gods of Rome. And on becoming emperor, he allowed all the exiled bishops to return to their churches. He simply hoped, actually, that this would cause so much confusion. You know, um, his thinking was these, these Christian leaders have all been scrapping away with each other like ferrets in a sack. So if I let them go back to their churches, it's going to make the Christian scene even worse. But the opposite happened. Athanasius returned in triumph to Alexandria, a popular hero, and he was now convinced that he and the originist group who had also been persecuted by both Constantius and Julian were really fighting the same essential battle against the Arians. So in a council held in 362, Athanasius suggested an alliance between these groups in the hope that they would be able to reach substantial doctrinal agreement and agree who the real enemies were, if I can put it that way. This is what Athanasius said, and I, I think here you see some evangelical statesmanship, if I can put it that way. Those who accept the Nicene Creed, but have doubts about the word homo ausios, must not be treated as enemies. We will discuss the matter with them as brothers with brothers. They mean the same as we mean. Our only argument is about the use of a word. After all, if people think the same thing, but aren't happy to express that necessarily in the same form of words, there can be some room for debate. And this move toward peace and unity in the church was far from what Julian the Apostate had expected, so he sent Athanasius into exile yet again. Julian was killed, however, in battle fighting the Persians only a year or two later. And a man named Valentinian became emperor in his place. And he put the east of the empire under the jurisdiction of his brother Valence. Now Valence was an Arian. And he started all over again 
persecuting both the Nicene and the Origenist groups. Athanasius had come back from exile after Julian's death, but Valens banished him yet again. But the fact that both Nicenes and Origenists were being persecuted to the same degree, the same extent, by the imperial authorities, managed to continue to bring them together against the Arian group, the real heretics in all of this. And Valens eventually relented on his policy of oppression, and Athanasius returned to Alexandria in 366. He spent the last six years of his life there, carrying out his duties unmolested. It was his dauntless and steadfast courage, in spite of endless persecution, in spite of repeated exile and you have to conclude that he may well have lost his life at several points in all of this if it had not been for the preserving mercy of God. It was his staunchness that did more than anything else to bring about the defeat of Arianism. It lingered for another few decades and uh, successors of Athanasius were needed to clinch other arguments against them. But essentially... We must thank God for the life of a remarkably tenacious man because the Arians were never able to produce anyone of remotely similar caliber. Well, brothers and sisters, I must thank you for a very patient hearing.